You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm here with Anusha Moore, who is a long-term Ashtanga practitioner and teacher living in California. Anusha reached out to me after her attendance in a recent workshop that I taught to discuss an issue that really came to light. And I'm looking forward to diving into this very important topic uh, during this conversation. So Anusha, welcome. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Would you share with everyone a little bit of your background in the practice and, you know, how you came to be in the position that you're in and to bring up uh, uh, the conversation that we're about to have? Sure. (laughs) So uh, let's see. I um, started practicing Ashtanga in 1998 in Minneapolis. Um, I used to be a long-term ballet uh, student. And um, I loved ballet and um, wanted to be a ballerina, but then, you know, wasn't really possible. Um, I mean, I didn't, wasn't talented enough really, in my opinion, and went to college, et cetera. But um, I always wanted to make my ballet dancing better. And I thought, oh, I'll go try yoga because maybe it could help my ballet. And um, I was at the gym and they were offering yoga and I walked into this yoga class and it just happened to be this woman who had just moved to Minneapolis from uh, Santa Monica where she was training with Chuck and Maddie. So Chuck Miller and Maddie Esrati and I had no idea who those people were yet, but um, I just really liked her and I liked the way she taught. And I, um, I think because of my discipline from ballet, I liked the kind of, um, the discipline of Ashtanga, at least I did in the beginning. But then once I realized it was like the same all the time, I found it really um, annoying and oppressive. (laughs) So I then started to hate it. Um, So I've kind of had a love-hate relationship with Ashtanga. So I I really liked her, but once she moved away, um, I I just started taking regular flow classes. And then I came back to Ashtanga about 10 years later, I think. Yeah. Um, and then, and now I love Ashtanga. What brought me back? back? Um, I think it was, um, I, I was, I was going through a divorce and, um, it was something like I needed that structure to help, like when the rest of my life was spinning out, like I needed something that was like, whatever else is happening, I've got this practice, I've got my mat and I can rely on this. And it's like my solitude. And I I just loved it. I also loved it because, because it was always the same. Um, I didn't have, I could basically do it on my own and I didn't have to deal with like childcare and, you know, whatever. So I could just do it in my bedroom if I wanted to. Um, and then, um, so I, I was brought up Catholic and, um, for Lent one year, you're supposed to give something up. And I thought, well, instead of taking, giving something up, what if I took something on? And so I made myself do Ashtanga primary series every single day for 40 days and see if I, if it made me like it. And I seriously, like 
it, I did it. And then I never looked back. It really changed my life. It made me like, so I used to be super flaky. Like it made me so much more accountable to people and things. I, I became a better mom, a better worker, but anyway, but I also wanted to say that it was such a relief to um, going from ballet to yoga because um, ballet, there's so much emphasis on what you look like and how thin you have to be. And not that yoga doesn't have that because it definitely, you know, we definitely feel that, but it's just not the same performance kind of quality. And so it was just such a relief to me that I was, I just like let go of the ballet and went over to to yoga hundred (laughs) percent. But now since the pandemic, I've gone back to ballet too. So now I'm doing both again. So anyway. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I've always, <laughs> I always wished I had been a dancer. So I yeah. envy you in some yeah, way. Super fun. I love it. <laughs> Anyways, um, another thing about me is that um, I am an immigrant to this country. Um, my parents immigrated in 1969, I think. Um, I was only nine months old. And, um, we moved from Sri Lanka to America. And as a result, I don't have an Indian accent or a Sinhalese accent, I should say, Sri Lankan accent. Um, and one thing I noticed when, um, you know, after the pandemic, you know, I've mainly been practicing by myself or on zoom classes, haven't really been in around students and in a workshop setting in a long time. And I have noticed um, that over the years that a lot of authorized teachers, after having been in India or, you know, being taught by Patabi Joyce or Sharat or whatever, they will mimic the Indian accent. And um, I took Kino's workshop. And as we, you know, we were doing our Mysore practice and she came into the room and I heard her giving adjustments and, you know, giving corrections, really, I should say, as she was adjusting people. And then she would say things with an Indian accent. And I was like, what is that? You know, because I know she's not Indian. I mean, I've loved Kino as a teacher for years. That was, I think, the fourth workshop I've taken with her um, in Phoenix. And it was in my head, I was just thinking, that is really annoying, you know, and I, and also, I just feel like in the past few years, there's been a lot more um, emphasis on um, cultural appropriation or, you know, there's the whole idea of cancel culture. And then, you know, we should try and be more um, appropriate in the way we speak and, you know, and being more impeccable with our word, that kind of thing. And so when I was hearing that, um, I was just like, why is she doing that? So um, it bothered me, but, you know, I just, whatever, tried to focus on my practice. <laughs> and then, um, you the know, next, Trisha, if yeah. I'm thinking about the workshop, first of all, thank you for sharing and thank you for reaching out to me about this. If I think about it and I tune in, I think I felt you being, being I think annoyed. I felt, yeah. <laughs> And I wasn't sure what it was about. So now if I reflect back, I can kind of see, I don't know if annoyed is the word that I would use, but like something was up, you know, yeah. like, and I felt like, gosh, I don't, she doesn't feel totally there. And I think I haven't taught Mysore in Phoenix before. So maybe you've taken my workshops, but not my Mysore class. Um, you did think- it once in the very beginning, like when you came to Hegel. Okay. 
Oh, but that like was a long years and years ago. Yeah, and maybe I, super maybe small. And, mm-hmm. 13 or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And exactly. I definitely yeah. do that. You're absolutely right. So thank you for calling me out on that. I absolutely do that. Yeah, and so I would hear you say things like, backbend, backbend, you do. And I would say, well, why is she talking like that? That doesn't help anybody do a backbend. <laughs> anyway, so... It was a personal thing of mine. So I was just kind of, you know, I was having this whole like internal dialogue, like, you know, really I should just lighten up or no, I don't want to lighten up, you know, I'm going back and forth. And, um, but as I was saying, like, I feel like because of the, um, the events of 2020, summer of 2020, the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all of those guys, all, all of the, I mean, it's not like things for me, um, it was brand new information for me that people who don't have white skin get kind of, you know, have to deal with a lot of racism, but if I feel like the whole world kind of woke up and had this, or the white world woke up and had this kind of collective consciousness of, Oh my God, this is happening to these people. And I feel like since that time, um, it's become no longer acceptable to, you know, make commentary or, you know, mimic accents or that kind of thing. At least in my opinion, that is what I had felt had the world had come to. And I know that through the years I've been with other authorized teachers who have mimicked the accent, but, you know, everybody would just kind of giggle and move on, whatever. Um, but again, that was before the whole, you know, George Floyd and everybody getting their awareness levels correct. (laughs) And, um, and I just felt like, you know, this is, this shouldn't be happening anymore. Um, and so, you know, the workshop was three days long, the second and third day, you know, I was, you know, just kind of processing, um, at the end of the third day, well, actually after the second day, um, one of my friends and I went out and he actually brought up Um, he happens to be a white man and he actually brought up, you know, did you notice that she's talking like she's not a native speaker? And I said, yeah, it's weird. Right. And I said, is it because we just haven't been around her in a long time and we haven't been around other people. So, you know, so I wasn't the only one who noticed. And then, um, you know, I had asked all of my students to attend this workshop, um, because like I said, you know, I've been following Kino for a long time and I, this is like my fourth time studying with her. And it was also because like, it is one of the first times in a long time where you're offering Mysore. And that's really um, all my students like to do is Mysore. (laughs) So I'm like, well, let's go all do this. And anyway, so one of my students is Pakistani and he um, reached out to me and he said, so what did you think about Kino mimicking the mannerisms and the accent of, um, of the Indians? And I'm like, I didn't like it. I was offended. It bothered me. Um, so the more I thought about it, the angrier I became and, and I felt like, you know, again, I was like, just thinking, God, in this day and age, after everything that's happened, why is this still happening? So rather than make some snarky post on, um, uh, social media, I thought I would just reach out to you directly and say, look, this is what happened. This is, this bothers me. And I would encourage you to perhaps reflect on your behavior or change your behavior. 
Anusha, thank you so much for reaching out to me and facilitating this conversation. Um, I think that to there, I've done a bit of research since our initial conversation about it, and there are a couple of things, which is first of all, I never in a million years imagined that this would impact uh, the harm that it would cause. So I need to I needed to sit with that, and it made me deeply uncomfortable, and I felt a lot of remorse and and, and um, you know uh, sadness around uh, the the negative impact it would have on someone like yourself, who's a dedicated practitioner, um, and also of uh, Southeast Asian descent. So I uh, first of all need to apologize to you as well as to anyone else that may have taken offense with my behavior in the past. Um, the second thing that that came up for me in in sort of reflecting uh, like the origin of this, like where did this come from, you know? And um, like I've been I have been going back and forth to India for more than twenty years. My first trip was when I was twenty two years old, and there were a couple of times when I spent more time in India than I did in the U.S. and in any other country. And the the mannerisms and the speech definitely stick mm-hmm. <laughs> for some period of time. And perhaps no place else other for me than in the Mysore room, because my only teachers have been Patabi Joyce and Sharat Joyce. They're really my only teachers. I don't have a Western teacher that I practiced with. I would practice with them and hear their voice in my head with their accent and their instructions when I practice. And that's kind of what was coming out for me when I was teaching. But, and I didn't, I didn't give it a second thought other than I feel my teacher's presence. And this is, this is, you know, uh, this is, I feel them with me when I'm speaking. Mm-hmm. I never gave it a second thought until you brought that up. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. The third thing that came up for me when I was thinking about this, and particularly um, when I researched the impact of um, accent mimicry, is that when a person of the origin culture has that particular accent, then they are often made fun of for that accent. They are often uh, excluded in social circumstances in a dominant culture for that accent. So say an Indian person walks into a, a bank with, and speaks with the Indian accent, then they would be treated in a, in a, in a different manner than someone that doesn't have, um, you know, uh, the, that's say a white person without an accent or a white person with a British accent, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's the fact that the, that, that, that particularly people of color, uh, and when they show up in the world, uh, with, and speak with an accent, then discrimination is often the result. Um, prejudice is often the result and ridicule is often the result. Um, you know, and then when someone else who, for whatever privileged reason, adopts that same accent, isn't uh, impacted with the same discrimination, the same negative impact, the same ridicule. In fact, they are uh, uh, sort of adored for it or they're they're given the positive benefit for it. Then this is where the harm starts to actually accrue. Um, and I'm familiar with the impact of, you know, uh, how 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 having an accent can negatively impact someone's position in the world. You know, my grandfather is Japanese, and he never spoke uh, anything other than broken English. And you know, even though he was excellent in his profession, he was never afforded various opportunities that probably would have and and were afforded to you know uh, white people who spoke <laughs> clear American English. Um, and I, you know, I he was one of my he's just so close to my heart and was one of my main caregivers when I was a child until he passed away when I was nine. So I really like from the firsthand perspective, 
when I was reflecting on this, it just brought up my grandfather and I thought, oh my God, I really get this. And I'm so sorry I haven't up until now. And this is where uh, these buckets start to come in with cultural appropriation, because that is the definition of cultural appropriation. When you take something from a culture and it, when, it, because of your position in society, then you benefit from it. But then that origin culture is, is, is discriminated against for that very same thing. And, you know, um, it's difficult to, to, to even, to even kind of admit that, oh, Hey, I was doing that, you know, consciously or unconsciously, this was an act of harm. Um, and then to make amends for it. So I think one of the things we talked about was, you know, um, uh, to, to remove that accent from what I'm teaching and figure out how I can still connect with the voice of my teacher. Maybe I'll have to translate, like do a Google translate in my head. I'm going to still (laughs) hear him saying what he says in his Indian accent. Then I'll have to do a Google translate and still feel his presence, you know? Um, And then, and, and, you know, if he would say something to me in, in his particular accent, then I'll have to figure out a way to say it in my own way. Um, Oh, but he's saying English words. It's really just removing the accent, right? Yeah, and also the grammar, right? So if I say back then, yeah, the did, syntax is a little weird. That, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's a Google Translate. Okay. <laughs> because he would he would oftentimes he would point at me and say, "Kino, you did." And oh, right, right. And then it was like, yeah. And then I would hear him in the room with the with the the broken English. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's stuck in my head. So yeah. I'm gonna and I'm willing. I'm absolutely willing to take that on and do a Google Translate and still keep his presence and feel like okay, I'm gonna take, I'm going to translate this into some version of, 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 you know, diction and syntax that can communicate the teaching. Um, I'm also sensitive to honor my connection to the cultural roots of, of yoga within India and, and, you know, yoga's Hindu roots and be Mm -hmm. conscious of that. So we can find these different buckets of, you know, cultural appropriation that we don't want to engage in cultural appreciation, which we do want to engage in. And then on some level, this new concept of cultural immersion where, you know, it's kind of like a a new concept that was presented to me by a person of Indian origin when when there was this question of can non-Indian people teach yoga? And so he Mm. was he would he had uh, sort of presented the idea of, yes, they can if they can present true cultural immersion, not only appreciation, but true cultural immersion to be fully immersed in the culture um, to have spent time with, you know, lineage-based teachers to understand not only, you know, the fitness form of the, right. of, of, of asanas, but to really dive into the philosophy and the history and, and, and go very, very deeply in, which I'm happy to say, I feel many Ashtanga teachers sort of try to go there more than, yes, they do. more, more than, than so, other kind of teachers. Yes. Yeah. So reflecting on that forward, I think that Probably uh, there are many Ashtanga teachers who hear, you know, Sharaji's voice in their head and hear Patabi Joyce in their head. And whether they're telling a story, you know, um, of an interaction or whether it's in the Mysore room that probably do something very similar to, to, to what I've engaged in up until this point. And so I think the conversation we're having now is maybe it's time that that stops, that that's not the way we show um, immersion within the, right. the yoga culture. Would you agree? that? May, that yeah, gets- I agree with you. I think that there's a difference between mimicking the accent and saying something that Sharad or Patabi Joyce said. Rather, there's a difference between that, which comes across um, as an imitation or like a joke, in my opinion. 
Um, actually, it's not just my opinion. I'll get back to that. But um, there's a difference between doing that or saying, you know what Katabi Joyce used to say, and then you tell a little story and then you everybody kind of giggles. You know, that's that's nice. Like you would if you were actually saying, um, you know, uh, Guruji used to tell me, he know you did. And then you and then, you know, and, and then everybody would laugh because you you like kind of set up that boundary of this isn't me talking. This is me telling you what he said in his voice. And then I want everyone to appreciate it. So but can we just um, pause there for a moment? Because yeah. I, I was even reflecting on that. And I was even thinking like, oh, I think maybe that's not okay. Like when I tell stories about Patavijor speaking, I'm going to make him speak proper English now. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, it's not like I'm the last word and what I say is law, but I feel like that is more acceptable because then it's like, you're actually citing the work. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're not plagiarizing what he said. You're giving him credit for this is what he said. And this is how he said it. Um, but it, it's interesting because, um, I, in, when I was doing research, um, on this particular topic as well. Um, one of the things that I researched, it well, I listened to this podcast on NPR, it's called Code Switch. I don't know if you know of it, but it's it deals with a lot of this kind of issues. Um, most of the episodes deal with, um, you know, black people having to get rid of their black accent and dealing with white jobs and that kind of stuff. But this one actually did speak to um, Indian accents and it was too, women of Indian descent who grew up in America. And then these two Indian men who were, who were Indian, I mean, they, and they live in India still, and they both happen to be comedians. Um, the men were comedians, the women were not, they were journalists, but anyway, so they were talking about making fun of the accent. And the, the thing that always gets brought up is the character of Apu on the Simpsons, who was played by Hank Azaria, who is Italian you know, and Greek and Italian or something. And they, you know, they play that and the Indian men were like, what is that? That doesn't sound anything like us, you know? And they, <laughs> but they did mention that most comedians tend to lapse into this um, Indian accent as a way of breaking tension, you know, it's like, so it's, so in, in that sense, I was like, I wonder if Kino does that because she senses tension and she feels like, you know, because people are pretty tense in a Mysore room, let's face it. But, <laughs> but anyway, so it was just a really interesting um, attitude towards the accent. You know, it's like some, you know, people, you know, make fun of things as, you know, I mean, they use comedy to lighten the mood. Um, but it's just interesting that like, why is the Indian accent used for comedic purposes? Whereas we're no longer, you know, you wouldn't imitate, you're not allowed to imitate, shouldn't say allowed, but it's no longer socially acceptable to imitate gay people, to imitate Chinese people. You should, you know, black people and really any other um, group that, you know, gets imitated. It's no, people are like, no, we don't do that, but <laughs> except this so far. So it was just something oh, that makes, it definitely makes a lot of sense, you know? And um, I was talking, I was talking with my husband about it because he also, you know, we, we both, we both come back from India fully, um, you know, engaged in the mannerisms of the Indian subcontinent and speaking um, sort of, you know, a little bit broken English to each other. And, you know, we both thought, gosh, like we're, we're, yeah, after six months there, it's hard to 
come back and suddenly start formulating sentences and doing handshakes and, you know, yeah. nodding instead of bobbling your head. And then, you know, Tim said, gosh, it's going to be hard for me to get rid of the head bobble. So this is another one that's interesting because honestly, that over the last 20 years, I feel like going back and forth, that's definitely something that's made it into my gestures within my personality. Yeah. And that's also something that you mentioned was this, was this gesturing yeah. with the head bobble. Um, right. and, and this is, and this is, and I, that's become an internet joke. The head bobble has become an internet joke. Like if you, if you could look on YouTube, there's a whole, you know, it kind of went viral, this whole thing and people making fun of the Indian head bobble, you know, and it's just, again, why is, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if I particularly mind that one as much, but it's still like, why do we have to make fun? Why of, do we have to make fun of it? it of I, it. Yeah. And it's. Like we're not particularly making fun of a lot of um, non, you know, yeah, we, we, people usually that are non-white get made fun of. So it's, Absolutely. you know, and it's like, I, I mean, I don't really see many people making fun of the white people much, you know, and that's not, and when you do, it's not particularly funny. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So, I, I make a good deal of fun out of my, out of my husband's uh, Danish culture. Um, but that's probably okay. a private joke between us. The country is a 5 million people. I don't think that's going to be a viral <laughs> internet success. Right, exactly. But the, I absolutely hear your point about that is, there's a question of, you know, um, maybe, uh, again, a, a, a gesture that's become an object of ridicule and an object, uh, to uh, create this kind of delineation between the dominant and non-dominant cultures within the West. Yes. So, um, and the signal value of engaging in those behaviors as someone who is a, a non-Indian non is important to reflect on. So I think it's a worthy point of reflection and, you know, a worthy point of, of a question just to figure out, okay, you know, um, at, at some moment uh, when you're in India, you're, you're engaging in the behaviors and the gestures that are that, that communicate well within that world. Then you come back into the U.S., then those behaviors maybe are no longer uh, appropriate. So it's, right. it's figuring out how to modulate and to figure out what, what do we do when. And I think there's probably a little, I, I know that there I know that many people uh, have a question just of even even my own English, where I speak, and even people ask me all the time, where are you from? What's your accent? Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a function of my husband is Danish. We spend yeah. uh, summers in Denmark. So there's, I, I definitely pick up some Scandinavian intonations. And we live in Miami, where I, the majority of people speak Spanish. And so right. I definitely have a little bit of um, quite quite bad Spanish in my repertoire. Language. <laughs> um, and then I have a, I have a good friend of mine who's French that I spend a lot of time with. And, and then, and then you add into that spending, you know, a good portion of each year in India over the last 20 years. And I feel like my English is quite terrible. Um, to be honest with you, I think, <laughs> I think I spoke better English when I was in like high school before I spent right. all this time outside of the United States. And um, so I think that it, that language is very important and it's, it's, it's also, it's a thing to really, really express value and meaning for us to reflect on diction and syntax to, to express, you know, um, uh, where our values lie and to, you know, reflect on what needs to change when it needs to change. So right. I don't know if we have any definitive answers for now, but maybe points of reflection for Ashtanga teachers who yes. engage in the Indian accent here and there. To reflect on, you know, what's that about for you? You know, go down the same yeah. question of that. What's that about? 
And, and I also feel like they should say, is it actually adding to my teaching? Like, is it helping this student understand the pose or understand, you know, the philosophy or the Ashtanga system or the Vande or, you know, like using, speaking the voice of my teacher or, you know, your teacher, Patabi Joyce wasn't not, I didn't ever study with him. Um, am I imbuing this practice, my own teaching with something more by doing that? And if I'm not, stop doing that. <laughs> or are you just doing it because it's self-serving and it's helping you? You know what I mean? Like you're there to serve your students. So serve them, you know, mm -hmm. appropriately. I think that's really the key. If it's becoming an obstacle to the teaching rather than right. helping the students connect into the teaching, if then instead of talking about well, you know, this was my experience during the practice. If what if the conversation is, you know, about the, the 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 accent used or this sort of thing, then on one level, that's a certain element of shedding of the light, but it's maybe depriving the students of the experience of just doing the practice, right? Exactly. You know, and then and then talking about whatever the experience of was just within the practice. Mm -hmm. So I don't have the the definitions of you know cultural appropriation, cultural appreciation, and cultural immersion um, handy, but I think those are three points of reflection for everyone to kind of research and take away. And from what we were talking about before, I understand right. that your daughter is studying um, cultural appropriation and the intersection uh, that that makes with yoga. So have you talked to her about this? Like what? Uh, oh what yes, I have quite a bit. Um, she gets extremely, um, well, you know, she is, a whatever she is, 21. So she's very passionate about her field and she gets very, very, um, kind of upset when she hears, um, you know, about what, about what happened and how I felt about it. And she was like, see, this again is just the dominant culture trying to show and trying to take over. And, you know, exactly what you said, you know, the dominant culture, you know, getting an advantage by taking on another culture, but then that culture is still disadvantaged, you know? So it was, she kind of spun it up, um, a, you know, into much more, ang she got much more angry about things than I was. <laughs> so then I felt a little bit like, sorry that I brought it up, but she didn't have a lot of really good points to make, you know, about how it, it, it again shows how, um, we, you know, non-whites are oppressed because white people feel like they can just come in and take things from us and claim them as their own. And, you know, I mean, yoga has, is originally an Indian thing, yet all these Westerners and um, Americans, et cetera, are, you know, they're, it's always portrayed as like a skinny white girl and they're making millions of dollars off of this, you know? So it's like all that stuff makes her really upset. So um, rightfully so. I mean, there's a good right. point to pack in to sort of go in to go in there. I mean, I, I think that um, so once we bring in the concept of race, then we have like dominant culture and then we have white people who are part of the dominant culture. And then we have another subset, which I think I fall within, which is white passing. And white yes. passing is something very interesting because a lot of people will will at some point will refer to me as white, and I don't identify as white because I'm I'm um, Japanese of Japanese descent, mm -hmm. and then and I was raised with my Japanese grandfather and raised with Japanese culture, and also my my mom and my grandfather faced severe discrimination for being Japanese. You know, um, to the extent that 
my mom was beaten up as a child for being Japanese and it was post-World War II United States. It was really not the time to be Japanese. Like now people said the Japanese is like, oh, cool. And my mom's like, yeah, not cool. Like we weren't really popular in around 1954, you know, my grandfather was in an internment camp and, you know, it's like a different world, you know? Right. Um, so, so this interesting for me to sit in this kind of like white, white passing privilege. And that's something interesting because I've had to kind of process what that means to be, um, you know, mixed race, white passing. Um, mm-hmm. and then sometimes, and it's sometimes you pass and sometimes you don't, which is, is, is another <laughs> interesting thing. Um, and then, and then to operate within that, to realize, oh, there are some aspects of my behavior that are from the dominant culture that I've taken for granted, these various privileges that I've operated within. And then there are these aspects of my behavior that are from the not, that, that definitely operate within the non-dominant culture and that I've experienced disadvantage because of. And so it's interesting for me to sit at that intersection. And I think that's kind of one of the cultural moments that we're in right now is to really think about that. I know that uh, that uh, unless it's it's been only in the last couple of years that I've been able to really figure out how to answer the question, which I get a lot, which is, what are you? You know, (laughs) I guess not a lot too, but yes. Evident, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, and my daughter is also white passing. I mean, she can pass at what as white. Mm-hmm. She doesn't like to, she likes to make sure everybody knows she's not white, but her skin color is very fair. Um, and she, she mentioned a lot of what you just said, the white passing, um, then becomes this complex issue where she feels like she's walking this line, like she's able to walk the line if she wanted to, but, and so sometimes it works as an advantage, right? Because people who thinking you're white would say a lot of things they wouldn't say, if they knew you weren't truly really white. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's, you know, that could be good. Like, there's no chance I'm ever going to pass as white because my skin is dark, but she, she has the ability to go between the two worlds. So. Sometimes yeah. it's not, you know, there's it's sometimes clarity. I, I sometimes envy absolute clarity, you know, like my husband's yeah, Danish. I can he's see that. Totally Danish. He's hundred percent Danish. He's from Denmark. He's yeah. Danish. And his parents are Danish. They can change their lineage back to the Vikings. They're Danish, you know? Yes. And I'm like, oh, I'm not really <laughs> sure what box to fill out in the census yeah, exactly. form. I often check other, which just feels like weird. <laughs> <laughs> because they used to only let you check one box. And now and that suddenly it starts to let you check multiple boxes. But I, I think of like the vast majority of my life, I've checked other, mm-hmm. which feels really awesome. I always checked other, I mean, they didn't have, um, South Asian or they, what is, I think they lump us all together. It's like Asian and Pacific Islander. And then Uh they have a little thing underneath saying also peoples of the Indian subcontinent and Sri Lanka Mm -hmm. or something like that. And it's like, okay, but that's pretty recent. I mean, that's probably like Mm -hmm. the last 10, 20 years. And I remember when, um, I went to a private girls school here in Phoenix and I remember going to city for the, um, the entrance exam and there was a box I checked other and the nun came over to me and she's like you need to check this one and she posted to black I mean she pointed at black and I said well no I'm not going to check that one because I'm not black <laughs> and and she's like well where are you from and so I told her and she's like okay then check this one and she points to American Indian and I'm like okay again <laughs> no I'm just going to stick with other thank you <laughs> wow and I was kind of wow. like well, I want to go to this school <laughs> yeah yeah Oh my gosh. So yeah, I've had my share of racial interactions, but um, 
anyway, I really appreciate you um, listening to my concerns and, uh, you know, hearing them and trying to make yourself a better teacher, which is, you know, what it's all about a better human being too. So <laughs> absolutely. No, and thank yeah. you for engaging directly in the conversation with me. Um, just to let everyone know, um, you're working on a blog that will dive deeper into the conversation and include some takeaways and reflection points for teachers out there. So it's something for everyone to stay tuned and look forward to. Yes. Maybe, maybe we'll be able to, maybe we'll have a conversation with you and your daughter one day. Yes, I hope so. Super. <laughs> and Anusha, thank you so much for the time. I really, really appreciate it. Where, uh, if people want to come take a class with you, where can they do it? Well, currently I am only teaching over Zoom, um, but I'm happy to share the Zoom link with whomever wants to learn Ashtanga or continue their practice virtually. Um, it's currently from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Mountains or no Pacific Standard Time, and then um, in March, in March we'll flip back to we'll start a little earlier and we'll go from 5:30 a.m. to 8:30 a.m. So, do you have a website where people can find that, or or how can they? Um, I don't have a website, but I am on Facebook as um, Phoenix Ashtanga Studies, as well as on um, Instagram at Phoenix Ashtanga Studies. So, if you send me a message okay. there. I will add you to our group. Nice. Awesome. Cool. Again, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.